I'm so grateful to be with you on this Father's Day. I think uh, the moment of the Lord's Prayer is just getting louder and louder week after week, which is such balm to Bill and Christina and I as we've prayed and preached in this empty sanctuary for months and months, so thank you for adding your voices today. Uh, one of the things that I love about Kenilworth Union Church, somebody in the last decade thought it would be clever to put when you enter into the sanctuary, this little sign that says, enter to worship, and another sign as you leave that says, depart to serve. And whoever put those in made it look as if that message has been there for more than a century. It's just the right tone for us as we enter to worship and depart to serve. And I think um, today's uh, sermon topic really accentuates that departing to serve, and so I hope that you um, that you sense that as you go out from this space, or if you're watching online as you go out into the rest of your day. We are pairing during this sermon series on called Shafts of Light. We are pairing one of the characters from our windows in Malat Chapel up um, in our. Uh, on our third floor in the west side of the building, um, one of the characters in Malat Chapel with a psalm. And so today we're thinking about Mother Teresa and um, reading Psalm 40. So here is Psalm 40. I urgently hoped for the Lord who bent down toward me and heard my voice and brought me up from the roiling pit from the thickest mire. And the Lord set my feet on a crag, made my steps firm, and put in my mouth a new song, praise for our God. May many see and fear and trust in the Lord. And as for me, I am lowly and needy. My help, who frees me, you are. My God, do not delay. Please pray with me. God, may the words of, our, my, um, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Psalms carry us through every human drama that we could ever imagine. Across 150 psalms, you can find every extreme of human emotion. You might feel abandoned, astonished, appalled, annoyed, apathetic, awkward, awakened, in awe. Whatever it is that you feel, the psalms can meet you there. Fragile, frightened, furious, frustrated, courageous, creative, curious, content, confused, the psalmists have been there thousands of years ago. Psalms also push up against our language, our, the inabilities of our language. How do you describe what it feels like for the world to fall apart? The psalmist says, I am low and needy, but that hardly cuts it. And so the psalmist says it another way, I am in the thickest mire. The Hebrew is the muddiest of mud, right? This doubling that carries the metaphor just a little farther. One scholar says that psalms cover dangerous and difficult times, 
dislocation and disorientation when the world does fall, when the sky does fall and the world does fall apart, an unraveling. And so the Psalms meet us where we are, no matter when we are. Psalm 40 is a prayer that has already been answered, right? It says, you heard my voice, Lord. There's some gratitude there. But it doesn't take long for the poet to go back to that pit-like place to remember the horror of enemies who desired to harm or to articulate that primordial sea beast that lives below the water or the pit of noise, a rushing confluent abyss, that thickest of mud and mire. It's the worst of the worst, as the psalmist reports. And so, out of that depth, God was rescue for the psalmist. God answered a prayer in a hard place. And Mother Teresa, too, heard that God. The God who went into the pit, who sank into the mud, who did not shy away from the most mystifying, gut-wrenching, intolerable places of the world. Mother Teresa felt a call from that God, our God, who rushes in to the face of death and who is in pain with us. Many of us know the story of Mother Teresa well. She had already been a nun for 17 years when she heard the call to minister to the poorest of the poor. When she heard God's call, it was in the words of Jesus I thirst. I thirst. It's the words that Jesus uses when he is on the cross, the cross, that central symbol for our God entering the world and suffering with us. God's suffering, a poignant clue that we are not alone when we suffer. And so Mother Teresa articulates that loneliness is the greatest poverty. Our window captures that quote, loneliness is the greatest poverty. She was already there in India when she heard this call to be with the poor in India. She began life as a Yugoslav-born Albanian woman, and then she moved to Ireland to become a nun, trained by the Sisters of Loreto. So from Albania to Ireland, and then to India. They sent her to Calcutta in eastern India near the border of Bangladesh, where though she had grown up speaking Albanian and Serbo-Croatian as a child, she learned English to work with Irish nuns, and then Bengali and Hindi to serve in India. And her role there in Calcutta for the first 17 years was to serve as a teacher. So when she hears this deeper call, what she calls a call within a call, she was in a place that she knew well, right? She'd almost been there for two decades. She knew the culture, she knew the people, she knew the language. But she was only at that time tangentially connected to the poorest of the poor. She wasn't serving them, she was teaching more well-off students. But she could sense There was something more. The poor were nearby. She felt this call. And so she told the sisters that 
Jesus had said to her, I thirst, and she had felt this call to serve the poorest of the poor. But it's not actually very easy to change jobs, even if you're a nun who is called by God to go serve the poor. So it took about a year, maybe a year and a half, before uh, the way was made clear for her to give up her teaching post and go out among the ones God was calling her to serve. And once she was there, she was with those who were thirsty, those who were hungry, those who were dying of preventable diseases. They were, as the psalmists might say, in the muck and mire in the pit of despair. As Mother Teresa's ministry grew, the intellectuals of Bengali didn't love that she was showcasing the poverty and squalor of their city. But that didn't stop her. In the first decade, she started a house for the dying, a place where those who were near death could die with dignity. She got permission from the government to use an old abandoned building where she set up beds for those who were terminally ill, sometimes just days, maybe hours from death, having had no other medical care previously. And so it makes sense. By 1979, as her ministry grew, she won a Nobel Peace Prize for her work, that work of what she called the Missionaries of Charity that she organized starting in 1950, forming hospices and then hospitals and homes for the aged and soup kitchens, not just in India, but then in other places around the world, places that offered dignity and hope for those who were lost and lonely and lacking. In 1985, she even set up this HIV-AIDS hospice center in New York City, the very first of its kind. And when she died in 1997, she was well on her way to becoming a saint in the Catholic Church. By 2003, her first miracle was confirmed by papal authorities, and in 2016, she was beatified as a saint in the local Catholic Church. She, has, she even has connections to Chicago. In 1983, she set up a group of sisters here in Chicago. They were trained in Calcutta and cared for orphans and the sick and the needy. And then when they came to Chicago, they were placed in a house right between two high-rise buildings in the midst of the hotbed of violence at the time. A man named Austin, who lived there, was interviewed about it, and he said that when Mother Teresa and her nuns walked down the street, everyone put down their guns. In fact, he said, maybe that's what changed my life, by me meeting her. The missionaries of charity still have a place in Chicago now, residing at 25th and Western, kind of across the street from the Taco Bell. Uh, so we can connect with this ministry, this global presence, just down the way. But as you probably know, it wasn't just accolades and praise for Mother Teresa's work. Even in the early 80s, she was harshly criti criticized. One person called her a religious imperialist, praying on the vulnerable to harvest souls for Jesus. Another called her just a charismatic leader who objectified suffering. Some reported her failure to show compassion for the nuns who dedicated their life to the poorest of the poor. The nuns suffered in silence. Some had untreated medical ailments, it's reported. Some people said that her ulterior motive was simply conversion to Christianity and that she baptized people without consent. In a scathing documentary by Christopher Hitchens, 
They called her an ally of the status quo, as if she was helping keep people in suffering. One person called out the racial dynamics of a white woman serving in India. A few, a few with knowledge of her finances said she spent donations in ways other than their intended use. So it's this caravan of condemnation if you want to, if you want to find out how complicated it is to be a saint in the 20th century and the 21st century. When someone said she was not doing enough to make change in the world, to destroy the systems that set up poverty in the first place, she's a little snarky too. She said, if some feel that God want them to change the structures of society, that is between them and God. Okay, Mother Teresa, we see. She, she had this vision, right? Her vision was one by one by one by one, me sitting with the one person who is with me right now. She wasn't about the systems and structures. She was about the intimate connection person to person. Her vision was to be present with the poor, to see the poor as brothers and sisters, to mend loneliness, to bring dignity. So I don't want to dismiss all of the criticism about Mother Teresa. I think there are standards of care that should be followed. And if they weren't being followed by Mother Teresa, then there's a way to mend that and make it right. The financial obligation, there are financial obligations when we receive donations. There are ways of respecting religious traditions of our neighbors that make us good interfaith partners in the world. Christianity is not a game trying to win souls. So if there's any truth to any of these criticisms, we need to take those seriously. But as a culture, I think we love to see what's behind the facade from reality TV, keeping up with the Kardashians to home improvement TV, property brothers. We wanna see what it's like behind the scenes. What is it like if you film the kitchen table conversations of polished pop icons? What happens if you literally take a sledgehammer to the drywall? What is back there? So we shouldn't be surprised when the New York Times published an article last month titled, Was Mother Teresa a Cult Leader? It's a little bit of clickbait, I think. And it is interviews with people who were part of the movement. And so it opens up this door to what was going on at different times inside of her, inside of her movement. And as a culture, we also secretly love to cringe as people fall from grace, right? We stand akimbo, slack-jawed at the news of some high-level pop star or CEO or saint who has now been slung through the mud, whether it's Michael Jackson or Jimmy Fallon or Martha Stewart or J.K. Rowling. We're kind of, it's like Gaber's block on the Dan Ryan. We don't want to see, but we can't help but look. And so criticism of Mother Teresa is part and parcel with the rest of the pantheon of those who have fallen from grace. We're trying to figure out as a culture how far to go. Do we cancel completely? Do we make way for redemption? Do we erase history? Do we find ways of accountability? Do we try to do better? And as a culture, we've also watched institutions fail us. Catholic priests, the physicians of gymnasts, football coaches, the police, the CDC, the FDA, the very water coming out of our water faucets. We're skeptical of institutions that make unambiguous claims to do good because we know that that is not possible. Mother Teresa's institutional failings are all part of that. 
So I think there's something about looking at Mother Teresa today, flaws and all, that helps us live into a little bit of nuance. And for what it's worth, my computer was so accustomed to me avoiding nuance that when I typed the word nuance, it autocorrected to, nu to nuisance, which I thought was pretty great. Um, so a, a look at the nuanced, complex critique of Mother Teresa might help us stop being so binary, so reactionary, so yes or no, so all or nothing, so always or never. I want us to have high standards when it comes to compassionate care for the poor. I want us to strive for well-trained, culturally competent Christian missionaries. I want us to be the kind of community that can ask big, complicated questions like, was Mother Teresa the leader of a cult? Because it makes us think about things like, what does it mean to have freedom? What does it mean to be in control? What does it mean to commit to a way of life and to be community? It holds all of these important questions that we should be asking. But I don't want us to lose that central message that Mother Teresa wants us to hear. Because it's easy to forget and it's easy to dismiss it's easy to throw away. She says, love the poor. Stay with the poorest of the poor. There, she says, you will find Jesus in the most distressing of disguises. Bill Clinton invited Mother Teresa to speak at the National Prayer Breakfast in 1994, and she preached to them. She said, Jesus came to bring good news to the poor, to bring peace, not the kind of peace that the world brings which is that we don't bother one another. Jesus came to give a different kind of peace, a peace of the heart, a heart that comes from others, from doing good to others. And we still struggle with this advice. We try not to bother one another. We keep to ourselves. We don't want to intrude. But she's saying that the peace of Christ means drawing near to one another. It means drawing near to each other in our deepest need and in our most awful pain. It means drawing near to the poorest of the poor. And so she said to that room full of devout Americans at the prayer breakfast in 1994, I want you to find the poor, not out there, but here, right in your own homes and villages first, in your own cities. Begin to love them, be that good news to your own people first and find out about your next door neighbor. Do you know who they are? She wants us to connect with one another and you know how God is nudging you to do that. She wants us to never forget. She says, never turn your back on the poor. Give until it hurts, she says. There is something you and I always can do, she says. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.